Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each of us. Peace be with you. Friends, our first reading for this weekend is, I think, a precious text indeed, for it shows us the church in action in its very earliest days. So we're reading from the wonderful Acts of the Apostles, and I've urged you, especially during this Easter season, maybe take out your Bibles and read through the Acts of the Apostles. It's a fascinating text, and it's it's really fun to read, I think, full of interesting characters and great uh, actions and adventures. So read your way through the Acts of the Apostles. The period being described in our first reading is from the you know 40s or 50s of the first century, so maybe a, a decade or two after the death and resurrection of the Lord. So we're in the very earliest days of the church. But I think what we're seeing is a kind of distant mirror, if I can use Barbara Tuckman's famous phrase, that in this distant, long-ago mirror, we can see a reflection of ourselves. Because we hear of a controversy in the church and a synod. Sound familiar, Catholics who've been watching the church's life for the past couple years? Well, their controversy wasn't like, like ours that gave rise to the uh, Synod on the Family, but it was a controversy around the relationship between the Jesus movement, I'll call it, and the classical Judaism from which it sprang. So, you know, it's a standard um, difficulty. Here's classical biblical Judaism, and from it is coming this, this new movement. What's new about it? What's distinctive about it? What's still in continuity with its past? That's the challenge. And we've seen this up and down the ages, both you know culturally, politically, and religiously, this kind of question. What precisely is the obligation in regard to the demands of the Old Testament law? You know, think of these first century Jews now whose whole lives were shaped by the Old Testament law. The demands that Yahweh makes on his people, you know, given at Mount Sinai and other places through the prophets, etc. Well, their lives were defined by them. Now, Jesus, the Jew, so Jesus who comes out of the same background, risen from the dead, the Son of God, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the law. What's the same about him and what's different? Now, it might strike us as kind of a peripheral question, but it was anything but for the first Christians. How to adjudicate this um, question? Paul was obviously interested. Why? Well, he was preaching a gospel of justification apart from the law. Now look at Galatians, look at Romans, look, in fact, throughout all of Paul's letters, you'll find this theme. It's not by works of the law that we're saved. Well, this is a rabbinic Jew, a biblical Jew using this language. So what did he mean? What is this justification apart from the law? The apostles, the elders, they were interested because they were Jews, and yet they knew that Jesus represented something new. Now, what we hear in the Acts of the Apostles, our reading for today, is the matter became urgent 
because certain people were preaching the necessity of following the entire law, and this was bothering the consciences of a lot of believers. Again, put yourself in that time. So you're a, a Christian. You're just trying to come to grips with Jesus. Some people are saying, as Paul does, no, no, we're justified in some significant way apart from the law. And still others were saying, no, we remain Jews who were bound by the law. It was bugging people, as you can imagine. In a word, and here's my distant mirror idea, welcome to the permanently messy life of the church. And I hope we can see ourselves in this mirror. These early followers of the Lord gathered in synod. They debated this complicated matter, and then they issued an edict, a letter, which conveyed their unanimous decision that the new converts to the faith ought not to be burdened with all the demands of the Mosaic law. Okay? Their synod took place. They debated. They argued. And they reached this unanimous conclusion that, that no, we're not bound to every detail of it. There are some aspects of it that they are still bound to, but not everything. Now, here's their extraordinary summary, and I've always loved this line. It is the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us not to place on you any burden beyond these necessities, namely, to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from meats of strangled animals, and from unlawful marriage. Now, several things about this that are really interesting. Notice, please, that lovely little phrase, almost comical. It's the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us. It's the earliest acknowledgement we have that the church saw itself as guided by the Holy Spirit when it gathered in formal deliberation. Let me just say that again. I think it's very important for the whole history of the church. This is the earliest acknowledgement we have that the church saw itself as guided by the Holy Spirit when it gathered in formal deliberation. So it was not just a matter of you know human beings hammering out a compromise. Like we'd say legislators got together and they hammered out a compromise uh, law. No, no. It's the Holy Spirit of God that is somehow involved in this process when the church gathers formally in synod. This idea, I would argue, runs right from this moment through every ecumenical council of the church up to and including Vatican II. That's our sensibility. The Holy Spirit is guiding the church when it gathers in formal synod. Notice, too, something. They are departing in significant ways from the Mosaic Law. They're they're saying uh, they're not putting this burden on the new believers, except for a few items, and we see them here. Abstain from meat, sacrificed to idols, from the meats of strangled animals, unlawful marriage. Elements of the Mosaic Law they kept. Many others they allowed to drop. It was a kind of compromise, guided, they were confident, by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's something else I want you to see. Notice, too, how the church, from the beginning now, we're in the earliest days with this reading, from the beginning, the church is alive and ever developing. John Henry Newman, one of my great heroes, said, to live is to change, and to be perfect is to have changed often. Now, what does he mean? 
Well, think of an animal uh, foraging for food, an animal moving through its environment. First of all, it has to be on the move, right? It has to be alive. It has to react to its environment in all sorts of creative ways if it's going to survive. An animal that just moves in one very predictable way that doesn't know how to react to a changing environment is not going to live very long. If he simply remains inert, he will, in short order, die. And so Newman saw, and I think you you see it anticipated in our first reading, the church Catholic is a living thing. It's an organism rather than an organization. What that means is it's continually moving, changing, adapting, reacting, answering new questions, responding to new challenges, etc. Think of G.K. Chesterton, who wonderfully and, and paradoxically remarked that if your job is to keep a white fence post white, what's the worst thing you can do? Leave it alone. Because it'll it'll be anything but white in very short order. Rather, you got to keep painting the thing. You got to be very aware of the environment. You got to be reacting to changing circumstances if you're going to keep the white fence post white. Now, let's bring it back up to today. In the wake of the recent synods on the family and the Pope's summary letter, uh, some have worried about the church losing its way, wondering whether such meetings and discussions are more divisive than helpful. Well, I mean, calling such things completely off would be a bit like King Canute and the waves. Remember, King Canute, to show that he wasn't all-powerful, told the waves to stop coming in. Uh, in a way, it's impossible to stop this development in the life of the church. Okay, okay, that's one side of it. Does this mean, therefore, that anything goes, that we are just a permanent debating society, that there's nothing permanent and absolute about the church. Well, no. Stay with that image of the foraging animal. Just as immobility would mean death, so would lack of integrity mean death. An animal who is utterly at the mercy of his environment is a dead animal. Does that make sense? If you say that all the animal does is react and adapt to its environment, that's called a dead animal an animal that's been taken over by its environment. A healthy organism has integral molecular, cellular, organic, nervous, circulatory, reproductive, and muscular systems. If these are in any way essentially compromised, the animal dies, period. And so the church has essential and formal structures that must remain in place. The liturgy, sacraments, especially the Eucharist, the priesthood, the presence of bishops, the laity at work in the world, etc., etc. I mean, all of these are essential structures of the church Catholic. If these were done away with, the church would cease to exist. Mind you, everybody, this is not abstract speculation I'm engaging in here, because all the things I've mentioned have been at different points in the church's life questioned and in some cases, indeed, jettisoned. And we would say as Catholics, that means the church there has stopped truly being a church. It's given in to its environment. Moreover, 
there are beliefs that are so basic to Catholic Christianity that any compromising will result in the church ceasing to be itself. Take a good long look at the great creeds from the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, others up and down the centuries. If the church were to say that Jesus is not the Son of God, that he didn't rise from the dead, that there's no third person of the Trinity, etc., etc., it would cease to be the church. If you were to say, hey, we better jettison these beliefs because it'll make us more acceptable to the environing culture, that's like a dead animal that's given in totally to its environment. Here's something from the Protestant theologian Paul Tillich I've always liked. He talks about the play between dynamics and form. Dynamics and form that takes place within any truly living organism. Dynamics is that change, adaptability, novelty, life, energy, and so on. Form is integral structure. Too much dynamics, the organism falls apart. Too much form, the organism falls apart. It's the balletic dance between the two that's necessary for life. See, I think what we see in this reading is that a way to understand the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church is precisely in the maintaining of this beautiful but precarious balance. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.